0: You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me you bubble know? What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it an offer. You talking to me? Straight out of the train. I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But When I'm bad, yes. I'm better. He's lion! Snap out of it. If they call me Mr. Oh, Boy's best oh, You have no style. You park all day, little dog. No. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a
1: bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. The heat wave is mercifully at an end in Los Angeles. So naturally now it's still kind of warm and raining. And I've never been to Florida, but I'm being told that this is what Florida is like weather-wise this time of year. So for that and many other reasons, not in a huge rush to check that place out. Anyway, this week in movie theater movie reviews, we've got Where the Crawdads Sing. I will preface this by saying I have not read the book on which this film is based, and I've heard the old adage that the book is better than the movie in this particular case, but seeing as I have not read the book, I cannot compare it. With that in mind, I don't get what the critics are railing on this movie for. I liked it, and I don't like movies like this. It reminded me of all the parts from like the mid-2000s Nicholas Sparks movies I was forced to watch in high school that I actually enjoyed. It does feel a little dated because of that, and not just because it is a period piece, but it's a very well done like sweet little film, and one I'd definitely revisit in the future. Oh, and then like another thing, since I finished it a couple days ago, if you liked my episodes on the European film histories and or the blacklist and or you're also interested in wartime Hollywood, I have got a book recommendation for you. I just finished Mercury Pictures Presents by Anthony Mara, and it is an incredibly well-researched novel about that era. It came out only about a month or two ago, so you can pretty much find it anywhere you can buy a book. It also ended up on a ton of book club lists, so it's around, but can confirm. Great book. Now, on to this week's topic... This week, we're going over the drama genre, which is probably the largest genre of all, though some film historians, studiers, academics, what have you, believe that drama is simply too all-encompassing of a term for it to be considered a genre. We'll also discuss some of the origins of drama, examples, and sub-genres of drama. I'm going to get drama and genre mixed up a bunch of times a day. I can already feel it. You'll never know, but I will. And a brief discussion as to whether drama is a genre at all. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Let's eat our vegetables first and do a brief history of where drama came from in the first place. As we discussed last week, genres change and adapt over time to keep audiences entertained. So, before we got film genres, where did we get modern drama? That's right, it's time for another 5-10 to 10 minute-ish speedrun on the history of a thing, this time on the origins of, well, technically Western drama. Drama as a genre, as we discussed briefly last week, far predates cinema. It originated in ancient Greece, and the word derives from the ancient Greek word meaning deed or act. Theories of drama date back to the works of philosophers like Plato, who in a famous passage in The Republic, wrote that he would outlaw drama from his ideal state because the actor encouraged citizens to imitate their actions on the stage. In Poetics, Aristotle famously argued that tragedy, a predator to modern drama, leads to catharsis, allowing the audience to purge unwanted emotional effect, and overall that would serve the greater good. Basically, theater good because it makes people good. It is widely believed today that tragedies were written to be an extension of the ancient rites, carried out in honor of Dionysus, the god of winemaking and partying and fertility, amongst other things. These early plays, whether they be comedy or drama, were only ever meant to be performed once. Tragedy, as we know it today, was possibly invented around 532 BCE, about 200 years before Aristotle's poetics, by Thespis, the maybe first actor, and whose name is who we get the term Thespian from. Thespis is sometimes referred to as the father of tragedy, though arguably, like most things involving ancient pretty much anything, he was likely not the first actor, and his actual contributions to the art as a form are a bit murky but somebody picked him and his name comes up everywhere so there you go that's a little thing on Thespis. when romans conquered several greek territories between 270 to 240 bce they discovered the greek tragedy for the first time soon because romans like to take everything and just call it their own greek tragedy spread throughout the empire where it continued to develop as a medium Jumping ahead a bit, in the 11th and 12th centuries, most English commoners were illiterate, meaning they couldn't read the Bible or anything, but churches were concerned more about the Bible over anything. So, in order to teach the illiterate masses the Gospels, the clergy frequently staged dramatic retellings of biblical events, which became known as mystery plays, as they, quote, "...revealed the mystery of God's word." They also created miracle plays to teach about the saints. These plays were insanely popular, moving from the steps of the churches to the town squares. By the 13th century, guilds would provide the performers of these plays as the clergy required more performers than they had men of God. And women were not allowed to be in the place. Depending on which guild, guild is an early form of union if you're unaware, provided the performers determined which story from the Bible they'd likely perform. The TED Talk I watched about this included the examples of Carpenters recreating Noah's Ark or the Baker's Guild covering The Last Supper. Once these plays were out of the hands of the clergymen, a new form of drama, which at this time, that word meant both comedy and tragedy, rose in the 14th century, leading to the morality play, which were allegories featuring characters battling for their very souls. Virtues and their corresponding sins were personified and became characters as well. Morality plays also featured a lot of audience participation, not always intentionally, which included them chucking food at actors and fighting with their fellow theatergoers. This would continue on for centuries. <laughs> and sometimes still today. The irony of the morality play was that it actually glorified the immoral acts far more than the moral ones because, unsurprisingly, the immoral acts were more entertaining to watch. Oops. As a result, unsurprisingly, in the 15th century, the church began outlawing these performances and forcing productions outside of the city limits. When the bubonic plague hit, theater groups would travel the countryside in search of audiences. It was at one of these banished-to-the-outer-city-limits theaters a few hundred years later that the world got William Shakespeare. Because of the medieval scribes, other playwrights of Shakespeare's time, and especially the bard himself, began writing about the inner struggles and consciousness of man, leading to the earliest forms of modern drama. In 1642, after the Puritans began shutting down English theaters during the Interregnum period in England, I think is how you say it, the French theater scene just so happened to revive and update the Greek and Roman theatrical styles of drama and tragedy in an era known as neoclassicism. The use of the term drama, as we use it today, dates from 19th century theater. Before that, drama just meant the staging of any story on stage, whether it be comedy or tragedy. Drama in this modern sense in theater actually referred to a play that was neither a comedy nor a tragedy. It literally was a development of genre. It is from within this narrow window that the film industry would adopt the term drama to describe a more serious film within the developing art form. In the silent era of film, these stories were driven by intertitles and the performances of the actors. Drama films were characterized just as being more serious in tone and sometimes tragic. Because there was no sound, actors would be trained on how to move their bodies to convey elements of the story in a world devoid of sound. When movies began being made with sound, drama films became more about teaching their audiences instead of just entertaining. They would soon develop further to make the audiences feel for characters and face our own emotions. Modern drama in the sense of film, and most if not all of this will also apply to TV as well, typically follow characters that are similar or familiar to audiences, often dealing with the struggles of everyday life. They also usually take place in realistic settings and or with a group of characters forced to interact with each other. Some of the topics of drama, movies, and TV are current events, societal ills, racial prejudice, religious intolerance, drugs, poverty, politics, alcoholism, sexual inequality, class warfare, assault, mental illness, corrupt institutions. Pretty much, if there's something in it that will super duper bum you out, it's a drama. A dramatic film that is well done will show you humans at their best and at their worst. They usually include a strong moral stance or a view of the world around them. So now, let's get into two genres that developed in Western cinema after the advent of sound. There are scores of genres, like I mentioned last week, but to give you an idea of what's kind of recently been prominent, I looked at the Academy Award-nominated films for Best Picture from the last couple of years, and we're going to go through the histories of two of the ones that I saw there the most. So you can get an idea of how genre can adapt and shift over time when dealing with audience tastes. There'll be plenty of time to go through all of these in exorbitant detail in the future, especially when I start running out of ideas. But for now, this is just going to be an overview just to give you an idea of how genre and drama has developed over the last, most of these start around the 50s, like 70-ish years. One of the first subgenres of drama was that of the social problem genre or message film, which, while being around during the silent age, became its own thing and a desire to bring audiences films that were lifted from the headlines. This idea was not unique to Dick Wolf and Law & Order, came way before him. This idea was actually spearheaded in a pretty big way by Warner Brothers in the early years. Their film, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gain from 1932, which can also be categorized in the next genre we're covering, struck such a chord with audiences and gave them a national consciousness in a way that they had never had before. The film dealt with the modern prison system at that time, and people were aghast with the deplorable conditions that they were seeing within the film. So much so that this film's very existence and the awareness that it brought to society as a whole, it actually led to prison reforms. And also to kind of add to the authenticity, these early message films often used non professional actors, were quite high in melodrama, and they always had a profound message, usually dealt more heavy handedly than not because we hadn't learned nuance yet. We, you had to develop that stuff. The social problem genre developed further after World War II, when filmmakers began diving into the issues of a post-war America. Namely, these films dealt with alcoholism, abuse, unemployment, traumas of the war, anti-Semitism after the horrors of the concentration camps were revealed, the mental health problems of veterans returning home, and the treatment of POCs, civil rights, and members of the LGBTQ community. Two prime examples of the post-war social film are The Lost Weekend from 1945 and Home of the Brave from 1949. The genre was curtailed in the wake of the HUAC trials because the people writing them were the leftist commies that were there, but not there, if you know what I mean. Because, you know, they're social message films. And during the HUAC trials, they kind of made a big deal about caring about your fellow human being and how that was making you a communist. But Social drama films saw a resurgence in movies like The Defiant Ones from 1958, which dealt with issues of race. Also from the 50s came the juvenile delinquent films, which the teens loved and parents feared their kids would emulate. The most famous example of this is Easily Rebel Without a Cause from 1955. Jumping ahead a little bit, the 70s films dealt with the effects of a new era of war and the lasting effects it had on its veterans. From this, you get the film Deer Hunter from 1978. Modern social issue films deal with racism, addiction, the fear of terrorism, and yes, the effects of yet another war. The Hurt Locker from 2009 and Sound of Metal from 2020 are modern examples of this genre. As you can see of of the message film, what these motion pictures are generally about reflects the issues of the day in the hopes of bringing a more social awareness to an issue the filmmaker or the studio or what have you deems worth, you know, making a movie about. So that was the message film. Next, let's look into the crime film genre, which were made in each respective era to reflect what society's vision of law and order was at that time, while also thrilling audiences with a heavy dose of chaos and wrongdoing. As we discussed last week, the earliest crime film, though now it's considered a Western primarily, is technically The Great Train Robbery from 1903. I guess none of these started in the 50s. They actually started way before. Anyway, during this time in the U.S., social issues of the day, namely immigration and urbanization, led to a sense of social anarchy and a general distrust of the government, which caused crime rates to climb, a.k.a. people were robbing trains. It was a thing that happened, you know, way more than it does now because there's not a lot of trains anymore. When the U.S. banned the manufacturing and sale of alcohol in 1920, something they thought the majority of the American people would be super stoked on, this caused an even greater disdain for the government and law enforcement because people were, in fact, not happy their booze got taken away. Some things never change. So, the now, quote-unquote, sober audience members got their jollies watching films like Little Caesar from 1931, which glorified the crimes of the main character in his attempts to gain wealth. This would also lead to a subgenre within crime films, which is the gangster film. Gangster films were incredibly popular until around the 1940s when European directors brought their own styles stateside. From this grew the film noir genre, though some argue noir is a style choice, not a genre, which was news to me. See, this whole thing is chaos. These films would center around a P.I., a police officer, a grifter, or even a normie whom, through a series of unfortunate events, got pulled into a seedy underbelly. Film noir was originally associated with American films, but as those films began to influence other markets, the term grew to encompass the entire style, genre, whatever. Noir was a term coined decades after the rise of this style, genre, whatever, and were originally considered actually melodramas, not noirs. There is quite a bit of arguments over what even makes a noir a noir, but these attributes I mentioned, as well as the presence of a femme fatale, are the most agreed upon attributes. Also from this genre came the first major emergence of non-happy endings in American films. A major subgenre from within crime films is the crime thriller, which was revolutionized through the work of Alfred Hitchcock, starting with his film Spellbound from 1946. The 50s began the emergence of bigger organized crime films, which showed society as diseased and corrupt. These films were raw and violent in tone. By the end of the decade, this genre would also include biopics of real people, think like mobsters. Another subgenre, the heist film, Think Ocean's Eleven from 1960, gained popularity as well. Everybody likes to see, you know, charismatic bad guys being naughty. Now, again, there is an argument as to whether this next one is a subgenre or its own thing, but for the sake of today, let's consider the courtroom drama as a subgenre of crime films as they clearly, at least to me, go hand-in-hand given what's at the root of their stories. Courtroom dramas gained prominence in the 50s, often featuring two lawyers going toe-to-toe with their arena being the judicial system. Courtroom crime dramas usually contain some of the most tangible thematic elements in film. You can have murder, betrayals, sex, hot-button societal issues, etc. They also featured unexpected twists and turns, usually culminating in a surprise testimony from an 11th hour witness, and also unusual motives, moral dilemmas, righteous lawyers, and their wrongly accused plaintiffs. Prime examples from the emergence of this subgenre are To Kill a Mockingbird from 1962 and Twelve Angry Men from 1957. With the more or less end of the Hays Code in the late 1950s, which was the strict set of rules imposed on films in the United States as to what could and couldn't be shown on film, violence in crime films increased, and more taboo subjects were explored. Bonnie and Clyde from 1967, for example. Combining several subgenres of the crime film, the 1970s saw a major wave of cop dramas, which typically followed vigilante cops through the lens of the filmmakers, now able to go to the nth degree without the limits of the production codes. From this, you get your Dirty Harry from 1971 or your Death Wish from 1974. Coppola would put his own spin on this era, bringing the gangster film back into prominence, or mom film as they became called, with 1972's The Godfather. The success of that film not only spawned a sequel but a slew of films from other studios hoping to capitalize on the audience's hunger for mobster films. The popularity of the gangster-slash-mobster film continues to this day, though in a lesser manner, but there's always like two or three that come out every year. Crime films, and especially crime thrillers, would also in part influence the horror genre, which we're going to discuss in a couple of weeks. Today, modern crime films deal with drugs, corrupt cops, and racial issues to reflect the modern concerns of society. Modern examples include Judas and the Black Messiah and Trial of the Chicago 7 from 2020. Despite them being period pieces, both of those films deal with concerns that modern people still have. So now that we've talked about the evolution of two types of drama over the last 70 years or so and how they adapted to modern times, let's look into how drama is described in The Screenwriter's Taxonomy, which if you remember from last week was developed by screenwriter Eric R. Williams in 2017. Also, the more I've looked into this, the more this seems to be quite the adopted way to do this now, which I'm all for. So yeah. According to him, drama is a type of film, not a genre. And below drama, there are seven types of those kinds of films. First, we've got the dark drama or psychological drama, which is a film that deals with like the super intense stuff. The Father from 2020 or The Power of the Dog and Nightmare Alley from 2021 are examples of this. There's the docudrama, which circles around historical events, but might make up some characters and take other dramatic licenses to tell a better story. Basically, the historical elements are mostly accurate, but they may have taken some license to, you know, beef things up. This type of film didn't develop in the modern sense until around the 1940s, with films like The House on 92nd Street from 1945, which features fictional characters, but was based on the real life of an actual spy. Modern examples are films like Mank and Trial of the Chicago 7 from 2020, or Belfast and King Richard from 2021. Then we've got docu-fiction, which combines both the documentary and fiction into one. These aren't super common. Also, this type can also can include mockumentaries, arguably. If you've seen the 2019 Martin Scorsese doc about Bob Dylan called Rolling Thunder Review, that's considered a docu-fiction. You've also got dramedy, which combines elements of comedy and drama. This is a little bit more common in television than in film, but the two Best Picture nominees from this year I would say kind of fit in here are Licorice Pizza and Coda from 2021. Next are hyperdramas, a term originally coined by film professor Ken Danziger, I think is how you say it. And these stories exaggerate characters and situations to the point of them becoming fables, legends, or fairy tales, you know, like. Cruella, and I think Dune would fit under here as well. Both of those are from 2021. Those those fall under here. There's the light drama, which is the other side of the coin from a dark drama, but it is still serious. The Help from 2011 or Little Miss Sunshine from 2006 fit in here. I was guessing Licorice Pizza fit under here, but the more I thought about it, it fits in the other one. There's not a lot of more modern light dramas getting Oscar love in the last few years, alas. Next is satire, which can also involve humor, but the end result for the film is typically a social commentary that is so, like, comically dark, if it's humorous at all, that it ends up tipping towards drama. Satire often uses irony or exaggeration to expose faults in society or individuals. A textbook modern example of this is Don't Look Up from 2021. There's Tragedy, which are films that show the extent of human suffering. The Japanese drama film Drive My Car from 2021 fits in here, as, since it's based off of Romeo and Juliet, so is West Side Story, also 2021. By the by, musical is not considered a genre in film by most, rather a storytelling choice. Tragic comedy is also considered drama, as the tone itself is darker, but these can have a happier ending compared to tragedy proper. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri from 2017 fits in here. Finally, we've got the straight drama, which applies to those that do not attempt a specific approach at drama, but rather are just considered drama because it they aren't funny. That's, that's it. This is where you get, like, Nomadland from 2020. So those are the types... Now let's take two of the films I just identified in the last, what, 15 minutes or so. I was going to say we take the last two Best Picture winners, but they're actually kind of similarly classified. So why don't we take Trial of the Chicago 7 from 2020 and this year's Best Picture winner, Coda, and break them all the way down in the screenwriter's taxonomy. So from the types I've mentioned, according to Screenwriter's Taxonomy, we next combine them with a supergenre, of which Williams argues there are only 11. Each film is assigned its supergenre based on the following. Character, a.k.a. the types of central people in your movie, their goals, as well as the stock characters that surround those characters. Then the story, meaning the central themes and how it's told. Then, what the audience expects. And finally, the atmosphere. Where are we? What are they wearing? What are they interacting with? And how is that making you feel? The 11 super genres Williams argues comes out of this are action, crime, fantasy, horror, life, romance, science fiction, sports, thriller, war, western. So in my opinion, for Chicago 7, as we discussed earlier, it falls under crime and CODA will fall under life. While there are a pretty limited number of supergenres, there are at least 52 macro genres, according to Williams, which is the next step down. A macro genre contains interchangeable elements that pair with super genres to create a more detailed story. By pairing a macro genre with a supergenre, more specific expectations emerge from within a story. For example, Time travel is a macro genre. This can be compared with a variety of super genres to create a multitude of different time travel films, like a time travel crime film or a time travel romance. Those are going to be different movies, but they still both feature time travel. Also, multiple macro genres can be used at this step. I'm not going to read all 52 out to you. You don't want to hear it. I don't want to do it. There's a link in the show notes to a Wikipedia article with everything, but You know, taking our Chicago 7, which we know is a drama, docudrama, crime film. In my opinion, its macro genres are historical, political, and legal. And for Coda, it's a drama, dramedy, life. And for macro, disability, family, and there's also elements of love and school in there as well. You could do this too, with the exact same two movies, and you may come up with something completely different. That, I'm finding, is the fun of genre theory. I'm going insane. The lowest we'll go, just for funsies, is the micro genre, which basically just further describes those macro genres. So each of them has like three things that just like, okay, what kind of family movie is it? What kind of love movie is it? What kind of political movie is it? So they they each have their own specific ones just within that. So for Chicago 7, one more time. Drama, docudrama, crime film, historical period, political national, legal courtroom, coda, drama, dramedy, life, disability, personal, family bond, rift, love, traditional, school, high school. Now, you may have never seen either of these films, but once it's broken down to this level, you very likely have expectations of the journey you're going to go on to if you watch it. This is why I've gotten obsessed with this over the last few weeks. The screenwriter's taxonomy breaks down even further than this into voices, pathways, and points of views, but that's headed a little bit more into story structure than genre. And you know, that's I don't we don't need to get into any more of this mess than I've already put you through today. Story story's a problem for for another month. That's a future Caitlin problem. So does every film fit into all of these boxes? No, of course not. But this kind of gets you where you're trying to go about 95% of the time, I would say. So now, learning all these ways that drama can break down, is drama a genre? Drama has, frankly, over the years, become a catch-all phrase for any film that is serious in tone and not necessarily within a subgenre. Or maybe, you know, you're a casual film goer and you don't know that there's like 900 freaking genres. So you're just like, oh, that's a serious film. So it's a drama. So using the word drama in this manner is that there's actually a name for it. It's known as a mode. It's a critical term that just kind of encompasses a whole thing, which absolutely it is. That makes that makes sense. The kind of intellectual argument as to whether drama is a genre, as far as I could find, basically comes down to the fact that the term drama is just too vague to describe a film these days. If the movie elements are serious and cannot fit into a more limited genre, only then can it be considered a drama because, like I said, there's nowhere else to put it. So this kind of fits into the thing we discussed last week about being ungenreed or non-genred so for describing anything that stands alone that's just weird and new i heard no country for old men get used in there a lot for this example i haven't seen it i know i should um so i can't speak to that but that's the example that i kept hearing in these cases yes drama is still an, an appropriate term for that very small like less than 5% of movies for me and I admittedly was not of this opinion when I started this, I believe that in the early days of film, drama was absolutely a genre. There simply weren't enough movies to break it down much further. But now, as genre theory has continued to shift and evolve over the last 120 plus years, and with an estimated half a million films in existence, there's more than enough motion pictures out there to be able to identify them in a more specific, nuanced manner. I'd agree that it is a you know the base classification of a film rather than a genre in the modern sense of the word but that's just me so after hearing all of this do you still think a drama is a genre <laughs> And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode, at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got to buy me a coffee where you buy me a coffee. I'm doing, I'm on a fills kick right now and I've got my very room temperature fills because I got it very early before I grocery shop today. Anyway, that's not important. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're doing the history of comedic films, from its ancient origins to the modern day. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.